Turn with me to Romans chapter 8. This um, wonderful passage that is found in this incredible chapter in the midst of this marvelous book, verses 26 through 30 of Romans chapter 8. Please uh, read with me as we again hear about the work of God the Holy Spirit in the lives of believers. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Lord, thank You again for this, Your Word. Thank You that every little bit of it comes from You through through your servant, to be sure. But this is your word for us, your people. And so as we think about it again, as we reflect upon it and tease out its significance, please give us your spirit. Please, Lord Jesus, take your own word and do with your word by the power of the spirit what I can't do, what no human agent can do. Press this word into the hearts of your people for their good. We ask in your name. Amen. Please be seated. Lots of you uh, here this morning know the name Paul Harvey. Some of you may not. Uh, You may be a little too young uh, for Paul Harvey um, to remember who he is. Uh, He was a news kind of a person, had a program, and he had this little thing that he would do. They were these little biographies, these little stories that he would tell, and you you certainly remember what that little program was called. It was a it was a wonderful little thing. It was uh, it was usually about somebody famous, although it might not have been about a famous person. It could have been about a significant event, but there was some person connected with that event, and there were always these little twists or turns or or features or aspects to these stories that that people probably didn't know, and so that's what made this little program so intriguing. And you know. Uh, what the title of that whole series was, what the name of that program was. Uh, at the end of the little uh, little vignette, the little story, Paul Harvey would say, and now you know the rest of the story. I, I, have, this, I have this picture of eternity. Um, I have this picture in my mind of what we're going to do for for several hundreds of thousands of years, 
as we sit at that banquet table and we enjoy that feast and we marvel at the liberation and the freedom of the new heaven and the new earth. I just have this picture of Jesus standing at the head of that table and saying to his beloved children, now I want to tell you the rest of the stories. I want to tell you the things that you couldn't see and you didn't know as the stories were unfolding. Every one of you, every one of you here who is a Christian has a story and is a story. And that needs to be a deep, deep comfort to each one of us. The idea that your life is an unfolding story, an unfolding story that has meaning, that has purpose, that finally has resolution, should be deeply comforting and encouraging to you. The idea that your story is not being authored by you, though you clearly play a rather significant role in your own story. But the idea that you are not the author of this story should provide deep and lasting comfort and encouragement to you. And the idea that the true and real author of this story took it upon himself to write this story as a personal and individual and unique expression of his matchless And limitless love should be a deep and profound encouragement to you. These are the things that this passage that we've just read is teaching us. These are the things that this passage is teaching us. It is designed to give us encouragement like that. Just remind you how we started last week and how I claimed that no matter your circumstance or your difficulty, no matter your struggle or your heartache, no matter the pain or loss of your life, no matter even the joys and the, and the successes of your life, in the midst of all of the circumstances of your life, with the uncertainties that are most definitely out there in front of you, here is the lesson, here is the point, here is the truth. You are not alone. You are not alone. And not only are you not alone, you have one whom you cannot see but who is real and who has come alongside you to help you in your weakness. And most especially in this matter of prayer, when you feel helpless and wordless and powerless and overwhelmed and stumbling and bumbling and inarticulate and you can't form thoughts and you can't form phrases. 
And you can't drill down into the depth of your own heart to figure out clearly enough what's going on in your own heart so as to be able to give some wordy expression to it. You have one whom you cannot see, but who has come alongside you to help you. And here are the three things we said last week. That one who has come alongside you is the Spirit who is present completely with you. Since it's really only about 10 after 10, can I just do a second sermon right here, and then as we get a little, then I'll come back to the... There, there are notions that, that seem to work their way out into the life of the church, that they're actually there actually can sort of be two conditions in the kingdom of God. That, that, that there actually can be those, those people who really and truly are Christians, but don't really and truly have the fullness of the Spirit of God. And I am here to pick a fight about that one, because the Scriptures do not teach that. The scriptures teach that if you are a Christian this morning, you have the first fruits of the Spirit. You don't have the Spirit in all of His fullness consummately expressed. He is the down payment. He is the deposit. You'll experience the total and complete reality, the fullness of it at the consummation when Christ returns. But if you are a Christian this morning, you are no less sealed, no more sealed, no less given, no more given the Spirit of Jesus Christ than the person sitting next to you or behind you or in front of you. You have been sealed and given the first fruits of the Spirit, and He is present with you completely. And He is groaning sympathetically as He comes alongside to help you and He is praying perfectly because He knows the mind of the Father and the Father who sees, peers into the depth of the heart of the Spirit knows that the Spirit knows the mind of the Father and the Spirit prays in perfect accord with the mind of the Father. And so the Father smiles and delights to hear the groan-filled prayers of the Spirit as He comes alongside to pray for you. That's what we saw last week. And what is it that the Spirit is praying for more than anything else? Though every ministry of the Spirit is personalized and individualized for you and your situation and your circumstances, While the paths will be varied and different, the thing that the Spirit is praying for you and for me is this thing for which Christ has died, your final restoration and glorification. That's what He's praying for you, that you might be conformed to His most glorious image. But here's the thing that we want to see this morning. He didn't just come alongside to help in prayer. I can come alongside and pray for you. I can listen 
I can do my best to sympathize. So can your friends in the church, your brothers and sisters. They can come alongside to listen and to pray and to enter in, to, to weep with those who weep, to laugh with those who laugh. But as I stand before people in the midst of their deep spiritual struggles, their joys, their sorrows, their happinesses, their sadnesses, I can't do anything. I can't do anything. God knows I want to. I am powerless to do in you, to do for you what I most want. And that is for you to move forward in your own glorification, your own redemption, your own restoration. I want so desperately for you to bring glory to God in the midst of this thing in which you find yourself. I want it for myself, but I can't do anything for you. When the Spirit comes, He comes not only to pray, He comes to work. He comes to work. I want to say some things. I want to ask some questions about this passage. With the operative word in verse 28 being the word work. All things work together for good. For this good, this good that you be conformed to the image of Christ. That by being conformed to the image of Christ, you become more fully alive, more fully human. By being conformed to the image of Christ, you enter more fully in to what it is your heart so desperately longs for, deep and lasting joy. God works, the passage is going to tell us, all things together for good. Now let's ask some questions first. Who is working Who is the one working here? Let's say two things about this. First, let's be clear about something the text may leave a bit unclear. Listen to how the ESV renders verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. The question is, what is the subject of the verb work? What is the subject? What is the one or the thing working? In this case, I think the NIV gets it a little better. The NIV renders it this way. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. God works. For the good of those who love him. That's a little bit better. It's a little bit better because we are not deists as Christians. 
It's a little bit better because that rendering conforms with what we know and understand to be true about Christianity. We do not believe that God, having set the earth and the solar system and the galaxy and the universe and one septillion stars hanging out there in space, we do not believe that God, having set all of that in motion, has taken his hand off the wheel to let things run of their own course and by their own power. It is not all things that are working, my friends. All things may work, but they work because in the midst of all things working, there is God, infinite, eternal, and unchanging in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth, who has not taken his hands off the wheel but who provides for the whole of his creation. He is a providential God. Some of us are reading Jerry Bridges' book, Trusting God. And he makes this observation that when a good thing happens to us, what do we say if we have the vocabulary? What do we say? We say, that was providential. Ah! That's very true. But we say it as though that were the only thing or the last thing in a series of things interrupted by a whole bunch of other things that we don't want to throw into the pot of being providential. What happened in the spring of 1976 when I was on my way to my seminary classes at 8 o'clock in the morning, made a left-hand turn in the front of an oncoming panel truck and was T-boned on the passenger side? My friends, that too was providential. What we are saying when we affirm this is not that all things just operate and function. No. This 28th verse is telling us that God works all things together for good. And even more specifically, and I embrace the commentators who want to put it this way, even more specifically, it is the third person of the Godhead who is working all things together for the good of those who love God and are the called according to his purpose. Which person of the Godhead has been front and center throughout this passage? Which person is the one who has come alongside to help? Which person is the one who groans? Which person is the one who prays? Which person is the one who leads, back up in verses 12 and following, who leads us as sons and daughters? Which person of the Godhead is it who is active as we cry out to our Father and then the Spirit cries out to us that we are sons and daughters of God? Which person is active? It is the Spirit of God. And I want to suggest to you, just in agreeing, just in agreeing with those commentators who understand it this way, that it is this third person of the Spirit who is in view in this working. He groans, he prays, 
And when he comes alongside with the fullness of the wisdom and glory and power and majesty of the Father and the Son, he comes to work. And he works all things for the good of those who love God. Now here's the second thing. I have to do this quickly. The second thing in connection with this, this question, who is the one who is working? Here's the second thing. People don't, people don't like theology, right? Dusty books, dead authors, language I can't understand. Now we say, and I heard this when I was first a Christian, and maybe you did too, don't give me theology Just give me Jesus. All right, you want Jesus? I'm going to give you Jesus. I'm going to give you the Jesus who comes alongside you in the person of the Holy Spirit, not only to sympathize, not only to hear, not only to pray, not only to groan, but I'm going to give you the Jesus who comes alongside in the person of the Holy Spirit to work in the midst of your struggle, your suffering, your uncertainties. Who is Jesus? He is this unique person comprised of these two natures, divine and human. Who is the Holy Spirit of the Father and the Son? He is the Spirit of the Father and the Son who himself embodies, if we can put it that way, all of the attributes of the Father and the eternal Son. And so who is it who comes alongside to help? He is the omnipotent God. He is the omnipotent God. Meaning he is the God who possesses all power. He is the God referred to in Hebrews 1 verse 2 who upholds All things by the word of his power, upholds all things, sustains all things, enables all things to continue to function. He possesses that power. Remember the septillion stars? Remember the septillion stars? Isaiah 46.10 tells us that he calls them by name. Scientists have run out of names for the stars. They give them numbers. This God who upholds all of these stars in all of their relationships is a God of limitless power. And here's the second thing. He is omnipresent. He is omnipotent. And he is omnipresent. And those of you who have been at the refuge, you, you've heard this little, this little diatribe, so forgive me, bear with me. But this notion of omnipresence takes in two different notions. It takes in first the notion of God's immensity, that he is very, very large, that he fills all space. Use the Hubble telescope. Reach as far as you can to the uttermost 
reaches of this cosmos. God fills that space. But here's the other thing. It isn't just that God fills space in the way that I fill space. It is not just that God is immense and large. It is also that He is omni, meaning all, entirely, totally present. That means that the totality of who and what He is, is here, present, right now, with you. He is here. He is not in China. He is not in Andromeda. In the totality of His being, He is present right here with you. David understood this. He wrote about it. He made a song about it. Psalm 139, verses 7 and 9. Where can I flee from your spirit? Where can I flee from your spirit? It's a challenge. It's a gauntlet that is being laid down. Go ahead. Make my day. See if you can escape. And then David goes on to say, if I take the wings of the dawn and go to the remotest part of the sea, behold, you are there. What are the wings of the dawn? The wings of the dawn are the first rays of light that are cast over the horizon that travel at 186,000 miles per second. David is saying, travel at that rate of speed. Go as fast as that if you can. What you will find when you get to the destination of those first beams of light is that God, in the totality of his being, is present already. You cannot outrun him. You can't escape him. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I lift myself up to the highest heavens, behold, you are there. Who is this Holy Spirit who is working? He possesses all power. He upholds all things. And He is everywhere present. And here's the third thing. And this is a stunning and beautiful thing. He knows everything. He knows everything. He is omniscient. This Holy Spirit of God who dwells in you, who brings into your life so that you might become a habitation for him, who brings all of this power and all of this presence and all of this knowledge. What do we mean when we say God knows all things? If this were a class, there are a half a dozen people who by now could put up their hands and they could say, I'll tell you because they've heard me talk about this. What do we mean when we say God knows all things? Here is what we mean. We mean four things. God knows all particular and individual things. He knows them. He knows the seat you are sitting in. He knows the seat itself. He knows the screws. He knows the legs. He knows the fabric. He knows every thread. He knows every atomic, subatomic particle in your bodies, in those threads, in the whole of the vastness of this universe. He knows all of that. And here's the second thing. He knows all of that in all of their actual relationships to each other. Illustration. 
You came in this morning and sat in a particular place. God not only knows you in that place, he knows you in relationship to everybody else around you and everything else in the universe. He knows all particulars and all particulars in their actual relationships. And this is where it becomes a headache. God not only knows all things in their actual relationships, he knows all things in all of their potential relationships. You came in and sat where you sat. You could have sat someplace else. God understands how you sitting in a different place would have completely altered the whole configuration of 160 or so people in this room. And that's just for one person. When you do the math, multiplying 160 by whatever factors there are that give you probabilities, the probabilities for the seating situation in this room are virtually limitless, and God knows all of it. And there's a fourth thing, and I love this one. God not only knows particular things as they are, in all of their actual and potential relationships. But God knows things which exist in one form, but which might exist in another form, or which do not exist, but could conceivably exist, in their relationship to all things actual and potential. Illustration. If a whale can have a horn, why can't a horse? A unicorn. A unicorn exists in one particular form, doesn't it? It exists in mythology. It exists in the imagination. If a whale can have a horn, a narwhal, why can't a horse have a horn? And exist not just in the realm of the imagination, but exist in the realm of material creation. God knows all of that in all of its actual and potential configuration. Now, folks, as I sit in the midst of the uncertainties of my life, as I sit in the midst of the uncertainties of my life, with my internal struggles, with the disappointments that I have walked through, when I sit in the midst of my uncertainties and my difficulties and I wrestle with the question, how can this possibly be good? How can this possibly produce good? Isn't it just possible that a God who is infinite in power, limitless in knowledge, everywhere present, can so rule and govern in all of the affairs and circumstances of my life in such a way that my highest good is the outcome and effect. See, here's the problem that I have, and I suspect you have it as well. When I find myself in the midst of my circumstances, my fundamental issue, My fundamental problem is a problem not of knowledge. Come on, I went to seminary. I know this stuff. My problem is not fundamentally a problem of knowledge. It is a matter of trust. 
And when I come to Romans 8.28 and I understand these things, that it is God, the triune God, Father and Son, through the agency of the Holy Spirit, who is not only groaning and praying, but who is very much present in the totality of his being, possessing all of that knowledge and all of that wisdom and all of that power. He is here. He is working all things together for my good. That, my friends, is not a matter of faith. It is a matter of faith. It is a matter of trust. Now, we're going to be in this passage for at least one more week because there's more that has to be talked about here. Particularly this business of foreknowledge and and predestination. I know you want to get to that. But before we get to that, let's make sure that we're doing our dead level best to keep a proper view of God in the center of our vision, who he is, what he is like, and that he is infinitely capable of doing what Romans 8.28 says that he is doing. Let me close with a little story. The rest of the story. I have a dear friend who lives in Denver, Colorado. About 15 years ago, he moved to Orlando, Florida, where I was pastor. In the two years that he was in Orlando, Florida, he went through some struggles. I'll just leave it at that. Deep, personal, relational struggles. And I walked with him through those struggles. And then after two years, he moved back to his home in Texas. In the midst of those struggles, I sat with him, cried with him, listened to him, sought to understand, found myself powerless and helpless as he asked the question, why is this happening? Why is this happening? To make a long and serpentine and wonderfully glorious story very, very short in the two years that he was in Orlando, his daughter came to visit them during the week of our missions conference where she heard from a pastor who was planting a church and started a school in Lyon, France. She majored in French. She wanted to teach French in a French-speaking culture. She learned about the school. She went to Lyon, went in Lyon for the year that she was there. She fell in love with the man who became her husband. The wedding was performed in Denver, Colorado, where my friend now lives, or he lives near there. His brother was living in Denver, Colorado at the time. His brother was not a Christian. His brother came to the wedding. His brother heard the gospel preached at the wedding. Something in what was said by the minister stirred something up in his soul so that he eventually became a Christian. Why did my friend move to Orlando? So that his daughter 
could hear from a guy working in France so that she could go to France so that she could meet her husband so she could go to Denver to get married to this guy so that my friend's non-Christian brother could hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and be converted. And now he is the happy grandfather of five grandsons. All of it and more because of two years of agonized misery. Oh, and if you were to talk to my friend, I know because I know him. I know that what my friend would say is, the best thing out of all of it is what I learned about God's faithfulness. God means what he says, my friends, when he says that he is working all things together for your good. He means it. It's on me to do the hard work, struggling to believe it and trusting myself to this God of limitless power and knowledge who is always present with me. Let's pray as we come now to this table where we're given such a marvelous picture of the love of this great God. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, you know us and you know how desperately we need you. Come to us. Take, again, the truth of your word. Press it into our hearts. Overcome our unbelief. Give us joy. Give me Dear Jesus, give me joy in letting go and entrusting myself fully to you, the only one worthy of that trust. Be with us now, O Lord, we pray in your name. Amen.